You're listening to the Qalam Institute podcast series, Sira, Life of the Prophet, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Qalam is pleased to announce that admissions for the next Qalam seminary intake are now open. For more information, please visit qalaminstitute.org. Bismillahi walhamdulillah wa salatu wa salamu ala rasulillahi wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Inshallah, continuing with our series on the life of the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam, Asiratul Nabawiya, the prophetic biography. In the last uh, many sessions, actually, we've been talking about the Battle of Badr. We started off by not only addressing what were some of the events or occurrences that led to the Battle of Badr. We talked about the, uh, you know, the setting up of the battle itself. We talked about the actual battlefield, if you want to call it the action uh, that occurred in the actual battlefield. And then we talked about last uh, week. We talked about you know, uh, the immediate aftermath of the Battle of Badr, who had fallen within the battle, particularly amongst many of the leaders of the Quraysh, and some of the comments of the Prophet ﷺ at that time, and just overall what was the scene in the aftermath of the Battle of Badr. A major event that took place here was right immediately after the Battle of Badr, there was the issue of the prisoners. What should be done about the prisoners? There's a number of different narrations. Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal ta'ala has narrated a couple of these narrations in his Musnad. Imam Bukhari ta'ala also has a narration, while many of the other uh, scholars of hadith have compiled narrations together, such as uh, the Sahih of Imam Muslim, Sunan of Abu Dawood, and Tirmidhi, and so on and so forth. So what I'll be presenting here will be primarily from a hadith that is found in Sahih Muslim, Tirmidhi, uh, and uh, Abu Dawood, along with the Musnad of Imam Ahmad, but I'll also at the same time just be adding some of the uh, elements, uh, extra elements of the incident that we find in some of the other books of Hadith and also the books of Sirah. So in summary, what basically occurred was, there's a very, um, you know, I, I, I ended last week touching on the note that whenever we talk about the Battle of Badr, we seem... Uh, ourselves, we make the mistake of just painting it as, you know, maybe something we saw out of a movie. All these bloodthirsty people rushing, rush into battle, and they're just murdering and butchering everyone with no concern for anyone. Or and the Orientalist telling of the Battle of Badr similarly is a very, very. Uh, you know, strange account of the Battle of Badr, removing all the humanity from the Prophet ﷺ and the Sahaba radiallahu anhum. We ended the previous session by talking about how that was not the case at all. That the Prophet ﷺ specifically kept an eye on the Sahaba who had family members who had died within the Battle of Badr and he was keeping an eye on them. And the Prophet ﷺ was going after them and pursuing them and consoling them one after another. He was consoling them and comforting them and letting them know that everything will be okay and more than anything just listening to what they had to say and so there was a very human moment there in the aftermath of the battle of Badr there's a very touching incident that's narrated that the Prophet of Allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam the night afterwards after they had captured all the captives and they had tied them up and kept them in a place the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam was not sleeping. Some of the Sahaba, they came to check on the Prophet ﷺ and they found him awake. And he seemed a little disturbed, he seemed a little upset. 
And so they specifically asked him that, "Ma bika ya Rasulullah? What is the what is the uh, you know what is troubling you, O Messenger of Allah sallallahu alaihi wasallam? Why are you not resting? Why are you not sleeping?" And the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam said, "Sami'atu anina ammi Abbas, right? Min withaqihi that I I I could hear my uncle Abbas because of course it was a very small setup, and so maybe in a tent nearby or the area was nearby. And he said, I specifically my uncle Abbas was tied up so tightly I could hear him kind of grunting and complaining because Abbas radiyallahu taala who was very old at this time obviously, so as an old man he was very uncomfortable, and he says I can hear him being uncomfortable, and it, it, it bothers me and it kept me awake, and so the Sahaba immediately were so. Uh, upset that the Prophet ﷺ was so upset by this that they immediately went and they opened his ropes. And of course, Abbas radiAllahu taala anhu didn't run away, but nevertheless they untied the uh, the uncle of the Prophet ﷺ, Abbas radiAllahu taala anhu, who was not Muslim at this time, to comfort the Prophet ﷺ. So you see the Prophet ﷺ feeling, um, you know, sympathy and 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 sentiment towards a family member, and this was the. You know, condition of many of the Sahaba at that time, and it was a very, very difficult moment for them to try to uh, understand and reconcile. At the same time, now once all the prisoners of war had been collected, and there's a number of different narrations which talk about um, Ibn Kathir, rahimahullah taala, has compiled all the narrations together. Imam Bayhaqi has collected them in his uh, book Dalailu uh, Nubuwa, and Imam Ibn Kathir kind of sorts through them. And so some of the narrations say that there were thirty some odd. Some say there were forty some odd prisoners after the Battle of Badr. However, the more authentic and the more authoritative narrations say there. Was was 70, there was 70 plus, or a little, a couple over 70 prisoners that were taken after the Battle of Badr, and that is the narration that Imam Bukhari mentions, and that Imam Bukhari authenticates as well. So now that they had these uh, prisoners of war, they were trying to figure out exactly what needs to be done. And so the Prophet of Allah wasallam, he consulted his companions. He consulted the Sahaba radiallahu ta'ala anhum. And three of the Sahaba who specifically spoke up, or rather three companions that the Prophet specifically called on, and asked them their opinion about what should be done with the prisoners of war from the Battle of Badr, were Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu, Umar ibn Khattab, and Ali ibn Abi Talib radiallahu ta'ala anhum. So these were the three that the Prophet specifically consulted. There's even a narration that Imam Ahmad mentions in his Musnad that the Prophet dua to Allah, Ya Allah, what am I supposed to do with these prisoners of war? And Jibreel alayhi salam came to the Prophet and he said, Khayyir ashabaka fil usara. That give your companions the choice to choose what they would like to do with the prisoners of war, which is basically a way to say that shawirhum. Consult them and see what they have to say. And so Imam Ahmad specifically mentions a narration that when the Prophet ﷺ asked them what should be done with the prisoners of war. One narration mentions that Umar ibn Khattab anhu said that bring them forth and we should execute them. So that, peop- so that this is a very serious moment. And again, whenever this is told and it's told without context, now all of a sudden it sounds very shocking. That you got prisoners and instead of releasing them and showing them mercy and what happened to Rahmatul Alameen and all of a sudden we're talking about executing prisoners. So context is very important. Umar radiallahu ta'ala anhu said, look, we went through 13 years. Many of you, you went through 13 years of difficulty, torture, anguish, 
right? They, they killed many of us. They tortured many of us. They destroyed families. They destroyed homes. They chased people out of their homes, out of their city. And then they continue to harass us. They continue to torment us. And these are people that are not going to give up. Just because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala granted us victory here, they're going to be back the next opportunity, as soon as the opportunity presents itself. And as we're going to learn go for, going forward in the seerah, we'll see the battle of Uhud. And the battle of Uhud was right at the doorstep of Medina. They knocked on the Muslims' doors, right? And knocked on the door of Medina and came right there at the battle of Uhud. So he said, this is a very serious situation. And whatever we do now can very well set the tone about what this dynamic is going to be going forward. And so many of these people that are captured are their leaders. Some of the leadership has fallen. Umayyah bin Khalaf and Ujbat ibn Rabi'ah and Shaybat ibn, uh, ibn Rabi'ah and Walid bin Utbah and Abu Jahal and so on and so forth. They've all fallen in the battlefield and that is a huge victory for us as a community because those were the people most vehemently against us. But many of their leaders survive and many of those leaders are here present amongst the prisoners of war. We have the opportunity to cut off the head of the snake, so to speak. Right, And so he's thinking about multiple things. He's saying that this is what's necessary for us to survive as a people in a community. We don't want to kill them, but they want to eradicate us from the face of the earth. And so this might be something very drastic, albeit, but something that might be the only thing that will, that will um, ensure our survival. And at the same time, they had a vision. Right, keep in mind that they had a vision. The vision was the vision of the Quran, the vision of the Prophet ﷺ, that we are meant to take this deen and this religion, this truth, manifest that all of humanity is in need of, we are meant to take this to the entire world, all of mankind. And in order for us to be able to do that effectively, and to be able to provide safety and security to the people that will come into the fold of Islam, we need to let them know that they, they don't have to fear the fact that if they become Muslim today, somebody hears the Quran and the truth of Islam and they want to enter into Islam, we have to be able to provide the safety and security that just by entering, by virtue of entering into Islam, there won't be an army that will show up at their doorstep to just wipe them off the face of the earth. And so there's a lot at stake here. And so keeping all of that in mind, we need to execute these prisoners. And the narration of Imam Ahmad specifically mentions that the Prophet ﷺ turned his face away from Umar when he said that. And the Sahaba could sense, could see on his face that he was very, not necessarily upset or angry, but it just seemed like he was very burdened by this decision. It was heavy on him. And this, again, humanizes the Prophet ﷺ. That he didn't want to see unnecessary loss of life. Particularly those people that many of the Muslims, including himself, had deep you know, relationships with. And so the Prophet ﷺ kind of turned away to see if anyone had an opinion. And he said, and then the Prophet ﷺ kind of invoked the fact, he said that these, many of these people are family members. You share blood with these people. What should we do? And so Umar spoke up again and again said, O Messenger of Allah, I feel this is necessary. And the Prophet again turned in the other direction saying, is there anyone who has any opinion about what should we do with our brothers and our cousins and our you know, uh, family members? And so Abu Bakr recognizing the sensitivity of the situation, Abu Bakr specifically said, that, Ya Rasulullah, Haulai Banul Am Wal Ashira Wal Ikhwan. 
that these are the people who are related to us. Many of them are our cousins and our family members and even brothers. And so I feel that you should take fidya, uh, a ransom, uh, some type of a payment for release. Because I understand my brother Omar's sentiment that we, this is a moment and an opportunity for us to really strengthen ourselves. Right? To be able to gain that safety and security and stability that has evaded us for 15 years. This is that opportunity. And so, but taking that fidya, taking that payment, that will shore us up and provide us with some funds, some very necessary funds. And those funds will be coming from their funds. So we will weaken them financially and strengthen ourselves financially both at the same time. So I feel that this is very appropriate for us. وَعَسَىٰ أَن يَهْدِيَهُمُ And I'm also hopeful that Allah will guide many of them. فَيَكُونُوا لَنَا عَدُدًا And then they of course will become supporters of ours. So the Prophet of Allah wasallam, at that particular time asked, is there anyone else who has any other opinions? And from the Ansar, the narrations mentioned that the only one to have an opinion or speak up because the Ansar really felt that this is a situation where we really don't have, you know, this is shura, it's consultation, but at the same time, I, don't under, I can never imagine what that must be like. I can't imagine what the muhajirun feel like, because they're talking about their family members. Right? To me, these people are complete and total strangers, but these are family members to them. So the Ansar withheld their opinion. This again shows the wisdom in that community, and it shows the sensitivity that they had towards one another. Right, that the Ansar didn't just jump up and be like, yeah, okay, get, execute them, get rid of them. Because they understood, these are not my family members, they're their family members. And that again shows the tarbiyah of the Prophet ﷺ, how the Prophet ﷺ trained them and raised them. That they didn't get caught up in the heat of the situation, but they understood the sensitivities involved and the sentiments and emotions that were involved there. That were very, very delicate. It was a very delicate situation. But Abdullah bin Rawaha radiallahu ta'ala anhu was the only one who spoke up. And again, Abdullah bin Rawaha, as we know about him, and we'll talk about later in the seerah, he was somebody who had a lot of expertise in war and battle. And he was somebody who was a, a veteran for all intents and purposes. He was a veteran. He was like a veteran general. And so Abdullah bin Rawaha radiallahu ta'ala anhu specifically said that I would also agree with the idea of executing them. So the Prophet of Allah وسلم, at that time, when Abu Bakr gave his opinion, the narrations mentioned that it seemed like it lifted a burden off the shoulders of the Prophet The Sahaba say that, um, that we saw that azala ma kana bi wajhi Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. Zala ma kana bi wajhi. That whatever was kind of like the, 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 the look on his face that showed how heavy of a burden this was that was just released from him. And the Prophet of Allah decided that this is exactly what we would do. We will take the fidya from them. And there are some narrations which also allude to the fact that um, because some of them could not afford the fidya, so at that time, again at the suggestion of Abu Bakr anhu, they were given the opportunity that if somebody knew was liter literate, knew how to read and write, they could teach 10 Muslim children how to read and write. Um, and that would also be a valid exchange of the fidya. And they could do that and then be released from captivity activity at the same time. Now, what would be the amount of the actual fidya, right? What would be the amount that would be taken from them uh, to release them from captivity? So that was another point of discussion. 
Um, some of the scholars, Ibn Kathir rahmullahu ta'ala brings many references uh, from Ibn Ishaq and others, noting the fact that at that time in Arabia, the trend, if you will, or the typical tribal custom or law at that time was that the lowest amount of fidya that there was a precedent for was 400 dananir, was 400 dinars. And, and some actually say, no, it was 400 dirhams. Regardless, it mentions the number 400. That 400 of the currency, whether it was dirham or dinar, silver or gold coins, um, which actually surprisingly at that time, um, it, it had different calculations, but nevertheless, 400 was the lowest that there was a precedent for, and the highest that was acceptable in tribal custom and law was 4,000. So think of it as $400 versus $4,000. That was the spectrum of the fidya, the ransom, the release payment that was accepted in pre-Islamic Arabia at that time. So when the Prophet ﷺ was informed of this, that here is what it would take to secure the release of a prisoner, the Prophet ﷺ chose the lowest possible and he fixed the price at 400 so this is something else that a lot of times is not contextualized, that this wasn't just an opportunity for them to make money off of these prisoners, but the Prophet ﷺ chose the lowest amount, of possi lowest amount possible. And actually there's, an, there's narrations which talk about there were some individuals amongst the prisoners where there were three members of one family, a father and two sons, or a father and a son and a nephew, right? So there were some, individ some, some individuals amongst the prisoners where there were three members belonging to the same family, four members belonging to the same family, and the Prophet ﷺ allowed them to give a hundred per prisoner, which was had even no precedent in tribal law or custom. So, and which was considered like peanuts, it was pennies on the dollar. It was nothing in contrast to what could have been demanded and made. These were these were people from Quraysh. Right? These were people of very high caliber and very huge amounts of wealth. These wealthy people. Right? But the Prophet ﷺ took the lowest amount possible in terms of fidya. Because again, the, the objective wasn't to make a lot of money. But the objective was to do what was necessary in order to solidify the community. And at the same time, the Prophet ﷺ also deferred to the position or the opinion or the suggestion of Abu Bakr in order to preserve as much life as possible as well. There's a very interesting uh, narration that is also mentioned here. Uh, about the, um, this, this fidya that was set and when it was set in some of the conversations that occurred at that time. There's a narration that is also mentioned by Imam Ahmad in his Musnad that when Umar uh, Abu Bakr gave the opinion that we take fidya and we release them as much as possible and even let them earn their freedom, even if they can't buy it, let them earn it, right, by teaching the children uh, or teaching a trade or whatnot. And Umar was insistent on executing them that the Prophet of Allah specifically at that time commented, it's a very well-known narration, it's a very famous comment. The Prophet ﷺ said that, <clears throat> he said, The Prophet ﷺ said that sometimes Allah softens the heart of some men, some people, that they are even softer than milk. 
right? That they are even softer than milk. And some individuals, Allah grants them such strength and conviction, right? That their hearts, He doesn't mean it in a negative sense like the Quran says, but He just says that they have the convictions like of stone. So some people have the gentility and the softness of, and the, the, the gentleness of milk, and some people have the conviction of stone. And the Prophet said, He said, You, O Abu Bakr, you are like Ibrahim Ibrahim famously, of course, it's from the Quran. Ibrahim said that whoever follows me then that person is from me meaning that person is with me asani, then who, but whoever disobeys me rahim, then oh Allah you are most forgiving and most merciful ya Aba Bakr Isa. and you O oh Abu Bakr you remind me of Isa that oh Allah if you decide to punish them then they are your slaves but if you forgive them O oh Allah the most definitely without a doubt you and only you O Allah are the dominant and the mighty and the wise that you would forgive them even though you are dominant you have dominance to do whatever you want and because it is in your eternal wisdom to forgive them and he said and he said Yo, you O Umar you remind me of Nuh alayhi salam qala rabbi la ala al-ardi min al-kafirina dayyaran that my Lord, my Master, do not leave a single house of the disbelievers on the earth. And you, O Umar, you remind me of Musa alayhi salam. That he said that our Lord, our Master, completely extinguish their wealth. And seal their hearts. And do not let them believe until they witness and realize a very painful punishment. أنتم عالة فلا ينفليتن منهم أحد إلا بفداء أو ضربة عنق So then the Prophet ﷺ said that Look, one of two things will happen Either we will accept the ransom Or we will have to execute them There's no third option here And he said أنتم عالة You right now as a Muslim community You are desperately in need of some resources Right, we've ta- we talked about in the beginning of the Battle of Badr the condition that the Sahaba were when they came to the battle. Two camel, two two camels in the entire army of three hundred plus. Right, the fact that there were um, some Sahaba were holding sticks, not even swords. There were there were like twenty some odd armors that were distributed amongst them. This is your situation. You barely have food to eat. You have no supplies, no resources. So. Think about what obviously makes a lot of sense for you here. Another narration, very interestingly, before I mention the ayat of the Quran and kind of the verdict that came from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, that when this decision was made about the fact that, okay, we will um, take the ransom from them, when the uncle of the Prophet وسلم, Abbas radiallahu ta'ala anhu, Abbas bin Abdul Muttalib, when he was informed of the decision that this is the payment that you have to make, Abbas radiallahu ta'ala anhu, knowing that he had a soft place, that the Prophet had a soft spot in his heart for him, 
He's the uncle of the Prophet ﷺ. So he tried to negotiate with the Prophet ﷺ. So he said, you know, this is a lot of money and I don't have a lot of money and things like that. And so the Prophet ﷺ said, what happened to all the money? What happened to all the treasure that you and Umul Fadl? Umul Fadl was the mother of Abbas. Radiallahu ta'ala, uh, Abdullah bin Abbas, excuse me. She was the mother of, she was the wife of Abbas and the mother of Abdullah bin Abbas. So the aunt of the Prophet ﷺ. So he said that what happened to all the wealth that you and Umul Fadl, had buried, had hidden over there in Mecca. And Abbas got really quiet and looked at the Prophet and he goes, I know that you are a Prophet. I know that you are a Prophet. He said, why? He said, because nobody, nobody besides me and Umul Fadl knows about that. Our children do not know about that money. How did you know about that? And the Prophet said, make the payment. Alright? And so this was a very interesting exchange. Another similar exchange was one of the individuals who was taken prisoner uh, in the Battle of Badr, uh, and he would accept he would accept Islam later on. He would become Muslim, uh, you know, many years later. And the day that he, when he became Muslim, and the Prophet of Allah sallallahu alaihi wasallam saw him and he met him. The, uh, the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam. His name was Qubath bin Ashyam al-Layth. Qubath bin Ashyam al-Layth. Uh, shahida Badr mushrikeen He participated in the Battle of Badr with the Mushrikeen, with the Quraysh. And he says, and he says that on that day, when I saw the Muslims, and then the tide just turned, and they had immediate victory in the battlefield. He says, "Jaltu aqulu fi nafsi." I started to think to myself, مَا رَأَيْتُ مِثْلَ هَذَا الْأَمْرِ فَرَّمْ مِنْهُ إِلَّا النِّسَاءِ That he said that women folk wouldn't even run from the battlefield the way that we, we're running from the battlefield. The women folk wouldn't even run from the battlefield the way that we are running from the battlefield. Just thinking to himself. And he said that if the women of the Quraysh were here, they would have fought more bravely than our men did today. Right, the women at that time not participating in battle, not being a part of you know any type of military activity. In spite of all of that, he said our women would have done much better in the battlefield than we did. And so he says, I became Muslim after the Battle of Khandaq. I became Muslim after the Battle of the Trench. And I came to Medina to meet the Prophet ﷺ. I said, where can I find the Prophet ﷺ? And they pointed that the masjid itself, the wall of the masjid used to cast a shade. And the Prophet ﷺ, after Asr prayer a lot of times, he would go and he would sit in the shade of the wall of the masjid. And so he was sitting there with a group of Sahaba radiallahu ta'ala anhum. فَأَتَيْتُهُ وَأَنَا لَا أَعْرِفُهُ مِنْ بَيْنِ أَصْحَابِهِ This is a very common comment. He was from Mecca. He knew who the Prophet was. But he said the way the Prophet used to sit with the people and mingle with the people. It's not like the Prophet had this like throne that he would sit on and all the subjects would very humbly sit at his feet. Right, that this idea that is present today in the uh, this elitist idea, whether it be leadership, political leadership, or governmental leadership, or even unfortunately, very unfortunately, in many religious dynamics, the same idea kind of exists. 
Let big sheikh sitting up on top and all the peasants sitting at his feet trying to catch some droplets of barakah. Right? The Prophet ﷺ didn't, didn't behave that way. It's his khilaf of sunnah. It's against the sunnah of the Prophet Right? And I even apologize at sitting here on the chair while everybody sits on the masjid on the ground. This is just for purposes of visibility. But the ideal scenario is sitting with the people, mingling with the people. And so the Prophet ﷺ would such kind of mix up and sit with everyone where he says that I'm from Mecca, I know Muhammad ﷺ. But I could not recognize from a distance who he was amongst the crowd until I got near. And when I got near enough that I saw him by face and I فَسَلَّمْتُ and I said salam to him فَقَالَ يَا قُبَاثْ بِنْ أَشْأَمْ يَا قُبَاثْ إِبْنَ أَشْأَمْ He said, O Qubath, you said on the day of Badr, You said that the women folk would have done a lot better in the battlefield than the men did. You're the one who said that on the day of Badr. He said, first things first, you are the messenger of God. Right? First things first, And he said, the shocking thing is, I have never said those words to anyone. Basically means that like my lips have not even, I haven't even mouthed those words. My mouth hasn't even like made the, the shape of uttering those words. My tongue has not even moved with those words, let alone saying it to somebody else. This is just something I thought to myself on the day. If you have to be a prophet, because Allah is the only one that could know that I thought this on that day, and Allah told you, so therefore you are the messenger of Allah. Right, so very beautiful, um, you know, and then he said that, Haluma um, And he said, so I said, please give me your hand so I can hurry up and accept Islam. And I became Muslim on that day. So this was some of the interaction that occurred uh, with the Prophet ﷺ and some of the issues pertaining to what to do with the prisoners of war on the Battle of Badr. There's a, another very interesting narration that is kind of mentioned here uh, about later on in Medina. That remember now, the uncle of the Prophet ﷺ, Abbas anhu, he paid ransom for himself uh, and he paid ransom for his, uh, for his nephew, for two of his nephews, Aqil bin Abi Talib and Nawfal ibn al-Hadith ibn Abdul Muttalib. So Abbas anhu, on that day of Badr paid ransom for himself and both of his nephews. So this, uh, the narrations mentioned, Imam Bukhari mentions this narration, that later on in the days of Medina, and this is after Abbas anhu, had accepted Islam, had migrated to Medina, that a lot of wealth, the Muslim, Muslim uh, people had accepted Islam in the place of Bahrain. People had accepted Islam in the place of Bahrain, and that was actually the first satellite Jumu'ah location that was established. After Medina, after the Jumu'ah was established in Medina, the, the people that lived out, even outside of Medina as far as Quba, 
used to come to Medina to pray Jumu'ah prayer every, every week with the Prophet ﷺ. The first Jumu'ah location outside of Medina that was established was in Bahrain actually. So the Muslims had accepted, uh, people had accepted Islam there. There was a Muslim community there. And they were very well to do. So they had sent a lot of wealth to Medina to supply the Baytul Mal and to uh, alleviate some of the difficulty in Medina and to help out the Muslim community in Medina, their brothers and sisters. So when that money was brought to the Prophet ﷺ, they said, what should we do with this? And so he said, unthuruhu fil masjid. Just put all the money in the masjid. Just leave it in the masjid. Anybody that needs it will come and take it. And again, it gives you an idea again about the uh, morality and the ethics and you know, the honesty and trustworthiness of that community. It was the most money that was ever brought to the Prophet In the life of the Prophet the Sahaba had never seen that much money. No spoils of war, no nothing. That was the largest amount of money that Medina had seen during the lifetime of the Prophet So the uncle of the Prophet Abbas came to him Ya a'tini. He said, O oh, Messenger of Allah, please, you know, give me some of this money. Uh, because if you remember, I had to give fidya for myself and I had to give fidya for uh, my nephew, your cousin Aqil. And so, خُذ, the Prophet said, So Abbas like, took off his shawl and he scooped up as much money as he could in it and then he tried to pick it up and carry it out and falam yastati' and he was not able to right abbas radiyallahu ta'ala was like a mountain of a man right i mentioned this earlier but there are some narrations which talk about the fact that abbas radiyallahu ta'ala anhu when he would sit on a horse sometimes like his feet would be very close to touching the ground and we're not talking about him sitting on like a pony we're talking about him sitting on a horse right so and you can kind of, and they talk about it as well that once he had become Muslim and they, when they would go in the battlefield, then Abbas radiallahu, the Prophet would have Abbas radiallahu make the announcements. Because he was so tall. So you can kind of allude, and the Prophet himself was a little bit taller than the average person. So if the Prophet was six feet tall, Abbas radiallahu ta'ala was even taller. Abbas radiallahu ta'ala might have been like around something like seven feet tall. So he was a huge man. And so he gathers up as much as he can in his shawl and he tried to lift it. He wasn't able to. So he said to the Prophet, Can you please tell some guys to help me? The Prophet said, No. He said, What I can do is, Right? I'll help you carry it. I'm not going to tell somebody else. And again, it shows you the Prophet wasn't just. If anybody could ever tell somebody to do something, it's the Prophet ﷺ. It's kind of his job, right? But the Prophet ﷺ said, no, you are my uncle, and you want money, and I'm giving it to you. That is something that I'm not going to tell somebody else to do. That's too self-serving. You see the, the ethics of the Prophet ﷺ? It's too self-serving. I can tell somebody else to go and do khidmah of the people, to go serve the people, to go do something for the deen. But to tell people to load up money and carry it to my uncle's house is way too self-serving for me. So I will help you carry it. And of course, Abbas radiallahu ta'ala said, no, you're a messenger of Allah. I'm not going to tell you to carry my money to my house. So now they're kind of stuck in this like adab tug of war. Right? This ethical tug of war. And so he... 
kind of dumped out some of the money and he tried to lift it. He wasn't able to. So he said, please, tell some of them to help me. And the Prophet said, no. Here, I'll help you carry it. Right? And again, he said, no, I can't make you carry it. So then he took some more out. Um, and then finally he lifted up and he was able to carry it on his back. And, you know, he walked away from there. And he just kind of kept glancing over his shoulder as he was walking away at the Prophet ﷺ, making sure that the Prophet ﷺ was not upset with him. Right? And he just kind of walked away in that sense. So it just kind of, Imam Bukhari mentions this narration as well, talking about the fidya. The fact that Abbas paid fidya, and then he was asking the Prophet ﷺ if he could have some of this wealth, you know, um, to compensate for the fidya. The other thing that I wanted to mention specifically about the fidya, the ransom payment or the release payment before I go forward is, many of the uh, Makkans, many of the Quraysh, who were willing to pay the fidya, did not have the money immediately. And so many of them, tawa'adu. They basically made a promise. They promised the Prophet ﷺ that, let me get back to Makkah, and I will gather the money and I will send it your way. I will send it your way. And Allah and the Prophet said, okay, fine, I'll take your word for it. Go. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala specifically told the Prophet, if they're trying to lie to you, if they're trying to trick you, then they lied to God a long time ago. If they're gonna lie to you, they lied to God a long time ago. But what happened? Allah gave you dominance over them, right? Allah put them in your hands, so let them lie. Take their word for it and release them. And let them lie. If they're lying again, Allah will just put them in your hands again. Wallahu alimun hakim. Because Allah, Allah knows everything and Allah is all wise. Right? So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is keeping very, very close tabs on them. So don't worry about that. You release them if you have to. Now the difficult thing that I wanted to kind of talk about here uh, towards the end the Prophet ﷺ conducted shura by the command of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And the Prophet ﷺ conducted the consultation. He asked everybody. There were some very strong sentiments at play here. We see that many of the Usara of Badr, like the uncle of the Prophet ﷺ, among, among others, would become Muslim later on. So we see the wisdom in that. But at the same time, the Prophet ﷺ deferred to the suggestion of Abu Bakr anhu. That was also what was closer to his heart in deciding to take the ransom money and release them. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala at that time revealed the ayat in Suratul Anfal. And I'm not gonna get into a lot of detail about the ayat here because as I mentioned, what we're going to do in the next following session is that we're going to go through Suratul Anfal and kind of see the entire battle of Badr laid out in the surah. So after having studied the surah for you know, however many weeks and sessions we've been, uh, excuse me, the Battle of Badr, however many weeks and sessions we've been studying it, we'll go through the entire surah and kind of see how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala pieces it all together in this powerful, beautiful surah of the Qur'an, uh, Suratul Anfal, surah number eight. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala at that time, part of the surah is Allah said, مَا كَانَ لِنَبِيِّنَ it is not fitting, it is not appropriate. Again, he does not say that it is not permissible. It is just not appropriate for a prophet, asra, that he have prisoners, right? Until blood is shed within the earth. That some of these prisoners were such problematic individuals that it actually would have served the community very well going forward that some of them should have been executed. Turiduna arada dunya. 
And of course, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala now is speaking to the entire community, again reprimanding them, saying, تُرِيدُونَ عَرَضَ dunya That you crave material things, the things of this world, the resources of this world. وَاللَّهُ يُرِيدُ الْآخِرَةِ But Allah wants the life of the hereafter for you. وَاللَّهُ عَزِيزٌ حَكِيمٌ And Allah is dominant and wise. لَوْلَا كِتَابٌ مِنَ اللَّهِ if this was not already decreed by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, this was just a note going forward. That if you deal with this type of a situation again, be willing to make the difficult decision and the difficult choice and situation. And as we see going forward, in the seat of the Prophet something we'll talk about, Banu Quraidha did occur. So this was something that was addressed at the time of Badr. لَوْلَا كِتَابٌ مِنَ اللَّهِ But if this was not already decreed by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, سَبَقْ لَوْلَا كِتَابٌ مِنَ اللَّهِ سَبَقْ If this was not already decided and preceded, لَمَسَّكُمْ فِي مَا أَخَذْتُمَ عَذَابٌ عَظِيمٌ That a great punishment would have come upon you because of the choice and the decision that you made. فَكُلُوا مِمَّا غَنِمْتُمْ حَلَالًا طَيِّبًا But now what was decided was decided and what's good is good. So now you are allowed to take and consume from what you have gained from the spoils of war that is pure and permissible for you. وَاتَّقُوا الله. Be conscious of Allah however. إِنَّ اللَّهَ غَفُورٌ رَّحِيمٌ Because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is forgiving and merciful. And then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells the Prophet قُلْ لِمَنْ فِي أَيْدِكُمْ مِنَ الْأَسْرَى you make sure that you let these prisoners know before you release them. That if Allah sees good in your hearts, that if you are able to go back to Mecca without the hatred of Muslims and Islam in your heart, Allah will give you something better than what was taken from you. You might have had to pay 400 dinanir or dirhams, Darahim, but Allah will give you something much better, success in this life and the next. لَكُمْ And He will forgive your sins. وَاللَّهُ غَفُرُ Rahim. Allah will give you Islam. Allah is forgiving and merciful. And then Allah told the Prophet that let these people go. Give them this advice to th- seriously think about Islam and then release them even with the promise of payment later on. To try to bring them closer to Islam. Why? If they're going to lie to you, then guess what? They lied to God a long time ago. So don't be bothered or worried about that. That is not really your concern. And basically, this concluded the issue uh, in regards to what to do with the uh, prisoners of the Battle of Badr. The last thing that I will mention here uh, before we wrap up for today, um, because I'd like to kind of go ahead and conclude with this today, is that the spoils of war. What should be done with the spoils of war? That was the next issue that came up now. Ibn Ishaq and many other scholars of the Sirah say that the Sahaba at the... Uh, as the Battle of Badr was concluding, the Sahaba were distrib- distributed into three groups. One group amongst them, as the Mushrikun, as the Quraysh ran from the battlefield, they went after them, pursuing them, capturing them as prisoners of war and just kind of chasing them off. That's something you have to do. You have to kind of make sure you, as we say, you know, in sports analogy, like close out the game. You gotta close out the game. You can't just take it easy. Right? So you gotta close out the game. So then some a part of the army has to pursue the enemy out of the battlefield. A group of the Muslims started gathering up. And again, as they're running from the battlefield, they have to lighten their load and try to run faster. So they're dumping out their, their weapons and their armor and their supplies and just trying to get out of there as fast as they can. 
So then a group of Muslims is now stopping and collecting all the spoils of war, all the goods. And another group amongst the army went back and just basically formed a barrier around the Prophet ﷺ. Just in case that some renegade, some you know, individual or a couple of people that just had kind of floated away from the army of the Quraysh might not come back because this was also something that would occur. Sometimes people would become so enticed by spoils of war that they would run out to gather spoils of war and the leadership of the army or some, you know, key individuals would be left kind of at the back unguarded or off guard and you could come from the back and strike from behind and really cause some serious blow and damage even in a, in a, in a loss like you could get a little minor win within a loss in that way and of course the death of the Prophet ﷺ would have been a major loss right so many of the Sahaba immediately retreated at that moment and just formed a barrier around the Prophet ﷺ to keep vigilant like a vigilant guard around the Prophet ﷺ so now they're distributed in these three groups. By the time everything was said and done, they had chased the Quraysh far away to the point where they were now well on their way to Mecca. And those people started to return back. The people that were gathering spoils of war had gathered everything and brought it back. And the people that were defending the Prophet ﷺ could finally now you know, let their guard down. And they came all back. And so in Jahilit, in Jahiliya times, right, in pre-Islamic times, the culture was that Whatever you picked up, you know, finders keepers, losers weepers, right? So that was the idea. You picked it up, it's yours. You, pick, you, you keep whatever you picked up. That was the idea. So now that they came back, uh, you know, some of the Sahaba relates, I believe it's Ubadat ibn Samit radiallahu ta'ala anhu. He says that this kind of ikhtalafna fin nafl, we started fighting about these spoils of war. وَسَاعَتْ فِيهِ أَخْلَاقُنَا And we misbehaved with one another. Right, again, it kind of shows you, right, and this is a little reminder not to criticize the Sahaba. They were much more ethical than we can ever dream to be. But this is a very powerful reminder. These are the Badri Sahaba. Ashabu Badr. We talked about their virtues. The Prophet ﷺ said, it doesn't matter what they do from here on out. Ashabu Badr are forgiven. Right? So these are Ashabu Badr. These are the Badri Sahaba. Right? They are the pinnacle of, the, of that generation. But it goes to show you that wealth and money, we always like to try to justify things and make a lot of excuses for ourselves. Wealth and money, if gained permiss permissibly, is permissible. If gained legitimately, it is permissible. No doubt about that fact. But there's a reason why Allah calls it a fitna. It will always tempt a human being. And the second a person thinks that they are immune to the temptation of wealth, I can sit here and juggle gold coins, and it's not gonna mess with me at all, right? Then you are deluding yourself. That is proof of the fact that it has gotten to you. That you have fallen into such deep delusions, you are, you are denying your own humanity. And certain rea human realities. Right? So that's problematic. So he says, So Allah took it out of our hands. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed the ayah, the beginning of Surah Al-Anfal. They ask you what to do with spoils of war, tell them they belong to Allah and His Messenger. Right? 
You don't need to worry about what's going to happen with this pose of war. You need to worry about two things. You need to make sure you have things right with you and God. And you need to make sure you have right thing with you, things right. You need to make sure you are correct with you and your brothers. Don't worry about where the spoils of war go. Keep things right, keep things good with God, and make sure things are correct with your brothers. That's what you got to worry about. Do whatever Allah and His Messenger ask you to do if you are actually believers. Right? And so that was the ayah that came down, and He said it was like a slap in the face. We all put everything down and stepped back and said, Sami'ana wa ta'ana. And Allah sent the Prophet some the ayat, and again, like I said, we're going to be talking about this uh, next week, inshallah. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala told the Prophet, right? So that there was a khumus, which is one fifth. One fifth would be t- set aside. And that khumus was for Allah, for the Messenger of Allah, for the poor, the fuqara, the yatama, the masakin. So that one fifth would be put aside for as like a government fund that could be used for the affairs of the state. It could be used by the Prophet and his own to, for the expenses of his home and his family. Because the Prophet didn't have time to conduct business. Who's going to run the ummah and preach to all of mankind and humanity? And the Prophet's family is not permitted. He himself and his family are not permitted to take zakat. So who takes care of the family of the Prophet? So it would come from the khums. And then the Prophet would use it to take care of the poor and the needy in the community. And then the rest of it, the Prophet equally distributed amongst every single participant of the Battle of Badr. He equally participated at that time. And in fact, it said that in the khums, that came to the Prophet ﷺ for the government fund. That is where the sword of the Prophet, the famous sword of the Prophet, Dhul Fiqar, that's when he got that sword. And it said that a camel that used to belong to Abu Jahl also came to the Prophet ﷺ at that time. There's a famous story about Ali bin Abi Talib and his two camels that were unfortunately killed later on. And it's an incident we'll talk about later on in the seerah. But one of the camels of Ali also came to him at that time in the Battle of Badr. So there were a lot of remnants of Badr. And the Sahaba, the, what they received during the Battle of Badr was, like, was very sentimental to them. Right? It was very senti- they were very sentimental about what they received in Badr. Right? So at that time, the Prophet ﷺ equally distributed the spoils of war amongst all the companions uh, who participated in the Battle of Badr. And there's a famous hadith of the Prophet ﷺ, where he also alludes to this fact, where the Prophet ﷺ says that, I was given five things that no Prophet before me uh, was ever given. And the Prophet ﷺ specifically mentions amongst those five things that uhillat li al that the spoils of war were made permissible for me, and they were not made permissible for any of the prophets that came before me. Um, and then the Prophet ﷺ mentions a few other things, such as jualat li al ardu masjidan wa tuhura, that similarly the 
entire earth was made a place of prayer and also a source of purification. Of course, he's talking about uh, the tayammum uh, and a number of different things. The Prophet ﷺ talks about that narration. But specifically, one thing that he mentions there in that narration is that the spoils of war were made permissible for me and they were not made permissible for any of the prophets uh, or the messengers that came before me. But spoils of war would basically all have, would have to be donated and dedicated in the previous shara'i'ah in the previous sharia would all have to be dedicated and donated and this was made permissible for the Prophet ﷺ and for the Muslims um, obviously because of need and necessity but there's a very interesting and again these types of things very conveniently are left out of some of the non-Muslim accounts or the orientalist accounts of the life of the Prophet ﷺ there's a hadith in the Jami of Imam Tirmidhi uh, and some other books of narration as well that mention that the Prophet of Allah ﷺ kana yakrahul anfal the Prophet ﷺ used to hate spoils of war. He used to hate it. Because he said that this pollutes the intentions. And he specifically used to have to go out of his way to remind the Sahaba and to make sure that this would not corrupt their intentions. But the Prophet ﷺ absolutely hated spoils of war. He despised it. He disliked it. It was more of something that was need and necessity. And so they would engage in it as much as need and necessity would require. And the Prophet ﷺ used to advise. On the way back from a battle, the Prophet ﷺ used to give targhib and tahrid and used to advise the Sahaba that when they got back to Medina to distribute as much of their spoils of war as they could amongst needy family members and even the poor and the fuqara, the masakin, as much as possible. Give it away, give it away. Right? After all that sacrifice, give it away. Because the Prophet ﷺ did not want their intentions to be polluted in the least bit. It's a very, very powerful thing that is necessary to mention. And then the last thing that I'll mention here about the Badl al-Badr. The Badl al-Badr of course was this powerful, this remarkable incident and event from the life of the Prophet wasallam. And it, is, it occurred, we talked about this in the beginning of the Badl al-Badr. It occurred on the 17th day of the month of Ramadan. And because of that actually, some of the Sahaba radiallahu anhum um, used to actually swear. When they would be asked about uh, when is uh, Laylatul Qadr, some of the Sahaba used to swear that Laylatul Qadr is on the 17th of the month of Ramadan. They used to swear, yes, this scenario is Zayd bin Arqam. Zayd bin Arqam. Radiallahu ta'ala anhu used to swear that the battle of Badr is the 17th of Ramadan. And again, that's not the preferred position, obviously, because we have a ton of other narrations that talk about it during the last 10 nights. But it just goes to show you that battle of Badr was such a powerful event that this Sahabi used to say, 17th of Ramadan. That's the day that, Bar- that's the, day the battle of Badr happened. That was Laylatul Qadr for us. Right? I don't know about you, but Laylatul Qadr for us was the 17th of Ramadan. Because that night before Badr, our dua was accepted. And the dua of the Prophet was accepted. And we saw the help of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala on that day. So it was a very powerful, remarkable, life-changing and world-changing event from the life of the Prophet And inshallah, like I said, in the next uh, session we'll talk about not only the return of the Prophet uh, back to the city of Medina along with the companions victoriously but then we'll also go through Surah Al-Anfal and just kind of see how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has pieced it together in that one beautiful surah of the Quran surah number 8 Surah Al-Anfal 
may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala give us all the ability to practice everything that was said and heard. Subhanallahi wa bihamdihi, subhanakallahu wa bihamdik, nashhadu wa la ilaha illa anta, nasafiru wa natubu ilayk.